I'm Lucy Marcus. And I'm Stefan Wolf. Welcome to an emergency episode of Navigating the Vortex. It is Sunday morning. Well, it's been an amazing 48 hours. What started out as a probably quite threatening military mutiny on Friday by now seems to have resolved into a deal that was cut between President Putin and the leader of the uh, paramilitary group that was mediated by the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, yesterday. And let's go back a little bit. So we had Prigozhin marching up to Moscow, pretty much unimpeded. And before he got there, a deal was done. Do we think that he had been planning this for a long time or was he just was he fed up and he had had enough? No, I think that was something that was in the planning for quite some time. We have to look at this in a little bit more detail. So on Friday, Prigozhin went on to his various channels, in particular Telegram, and basically said that the Russian military forces had attacked his camp and that he basically now, as you put it, had enough and that he was starting his march for justice. Now, that may well have been the actual trigger of the events. But I think it's very clear that this was in the planning for several weeks, probably at least since the time when the still current, but probably not for much longer, Minister of Defense of Russia, Sergei Shoigu, requested that all of the mercenaries that had a contract with Wagner would instead sign a contract with the Russian Ministry of Defense. Now, that was resisted by Prigozhin quite strongly. And I think it's likely that at this point he realized that he really needed to have plan B. If we are looking at the way in which the situation unfolded, Prigozhin basically assembled two columns. One of them marched to Rostov on Don, a city just on the other side of the Russian-Ukrainian border, where one of the operational headquarters of the Russian Southern Military District is located. It basically runs most of the operations in Ukraine. And he picked it because it was close, but also because it was strategic. I think very much so. And as you said, he walked across the border, well, rolled across the border, rolled into Rostov-on-Don, positioned himself onto the military headquarters without any resistance. And at the same time, a second column... Because they were cooperating? Well, it's hard to say at this stage, and probably nobody will now admit to cooperating with Prigozhin. But the fact is that there was no resistance. So that can either be out of opportunism, or it can be out of sympathy, out of support for Prigozhin. We'll probably never know. So he grabbed that, took it pretty easily... And then a second column. And then the second column was already marching north towards Voronezh, which is another major city located on this strategic M4 highway that links off on Don with Moscow. Total distance between Rostov and Moscow, roughly 500, 600 miles maybe. Voronezh about the halfway point. So Prigozhin's forces, again, without much resistance, got to Voronezh around midday yesterday. There were some attempts by Russian air force to attack his column, but all of those planes and helicopters apparently were shot down by Prigozhin. So and so Pr Prigozhin, was he... With his military first in Rostov? He was first in, was first in Rostov when they took the southern military district headquarters there. And then he shifted over. 
And then from what we know, and to the extent that you can verify any of these postings, then he certainly shifted over towards Voronezh. So they went north, secured that area, and then? And apparently kept going. Then in the afternoon, we had reports from the governor of Lipetsk, which is a little bit further north again than Voronezh, that certainly Wagner fighters had been sighted in the vicinity there. But then also, that was probably already the time when talks between Lukashenko and Prigozhin were coming to what now we know is a successful conclusion. So let me stop you there for a second and let's go deep a little bit on Lukashenko. Why Lukashenko and what happened in that process? Because people noted that Lukashenko wasn't at home, but they didn't know what his story was. Yeah, it's it's not quite clear where Lukashenko actually was and whether this was done by phone or whichever way they communicated. What is interesting about Lukashenko being the one to broker the deal is that that is not in any way something that is completely new, novel or out of the blue. Lukashenko was certainly the guy who hosted the talks in September 2014 and February 2015 that eventually led to the so-called Minsk agreements that created the, the ceasefire in 2014-15 after Russia annexed Crimea and took and occupied parts of Donbass. So Lukashenko stepped in? Well, I don't think he stepped in. I think he had a very clear mandate from Putin on whom he completely depends for his own regime's security, which I think also then made it easier for him to talk to Prigozhin because Prigozhin would have known that this is not Lukashenko's initiative, but that Lukashenko basically is Putin's mouthpiece here and that whatever Lukashenko says to Prigozhin will be what Putin has pretty much authorized him to say. And so Prigozhin is marching, he's talking to Lukashenko, they do the deal Prigozhin stops his fairly swift advance. And in the meantime, Moscow is getting ready for his arrival. And we've seen pictures of cement trucks and streets being dug up and so on, and makes his big announcement and turns around and it's all over. It, it is. That, that was the amazing thing in many ways. As quickly as it started, it also ended. And whilst Prigozhin was making a lot uh, about the fact that not a single drop of Russian blood had been spilled, we have to take that obviously with a grain of salt here in two ways. One is that all the pilots and crew on the aircraft that were shot down, they pretty much all died. And also, I think it's a bit rich coming from Prigozhin to pride himself in not having spilled a drop of Russian blood. And he basically has used most of his mercenaries and the recruits that he got from Russian prisons simply as cannon fodder in this battle for Bakhmut over the last several months. So this is not necessarily somebody here who has a high level of moral integrity and really cares about the lives of other people. But it is a fact that there was no major military confrontation as part of this, whatever you want to call it, mutiny attempted coup d'etat. And in that sense, I think there probably was already from the beginning a plan B, because Prigozhin is not stupid. He is not somebody who got to where he is without being an extremely accomplished and clever operator. So his calculation in all likelihood was that he could easily take 
on Moscow provided that it wouldn't just have been passive support, so that people basically let him march through, but he did not see any swelling of his troops with local armed forces or local security forces. Which is something that we should come back around to, because pretty astonishing to be able to march on through and either with no one caring or being neutral or even rooting him on, he was just able to march on through Russia. That is something, and it says something, I think, about... Putin's hold on the country and the interests of the Russian people themselves in stepping into what could be perceived as just two big guys having it out. Well, I think that that is what probably most ordinary Russians were thinking. This is really not their fight. And would it make a massive difference for them whether they are part of a regime Putin or a regime Prigozhin? Probably not. The other thing is that I don't necessarily think it's only about the level of control that Putin has. It's also, I would say, the complete lack of capable military assets that he has left. Most of his armed forces are tied up in Ukraine and the troops that he has available and the security forces that he has available, they would have struggled to deal with 25,000 battle-hardened mercenaries, most of whom actually had a career in the Russian military forces prior to joining Wagner. So now where we are, the deal has been struck. Pergosian has essentially taken care of himself. He'll now go to Belarus and all of his military must, will, can sign up. What, what is their status? You're right. First of all, Pergosian goes into exile in Belarus and that's an interesting issue in itself. In terms of the question what will happen with the Wagner mercenaries, I think the Russian Ministry of Defense will do as much as they can to sign them up, not least because they are one of their more effective fighting forces in Ukraine. So 25,000 really well-trained, well-equipped soldiers, that is not something that Russia can very easily lose or replace. And what about all of the convicts and so on? Probably the same. The other question is, what about those who really don't want that because they are worried that there will be longer term repercussions that eventually Putin, the FSB, the military will take revenge on them? And there apparently the option is that they get out, go to any of the vast network of bases that Wagner already has, predominantly in Africa. And I think that also is sort of one of those things one needs to keep watching, how that will impact the situation in those countries. Okay, let's put a pin in that for a second, because I, I want us to talk about that more fully. And an interesting thought that the fighters that he had, if they want to, they can shift over to one of the other many places where he has a presence. So... He goes to supposedly Belarus. Now you've got Putin, some streets blocked off, some cement trucks all around in Moscow, but quietude again? Or And what does Putin do now? I'm looking at it and thinking, what does this mean now? It, it was very scary if you were running a large multinational company. All of the world leaders were talking yesterday Where is the power? What happens next? 
I think in the short term, we will see some stabilization in Russia again. It seems as if Putin has, if not eliminated, then certainly marginalized Prigozhin for the time being. It's not entirely clear what else he had to give him as part of the deal. Some of the rumors that I've seen on various media channels, including some that are quite close to the Kremlin, it seems that there will be a replacement of the current Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, and the Chief of the General Staff of the Russian Armed Forces, Valery Gerasimov. And the two names in contention there, Alexei Dumin, the current governor of the Tula region, but also the guy who was in charge of the military operation that led to the annexation of Crimea in 2014, so somebody who held the title of lieutenant general in the Russian armed forces. So he's most likely, if one can trust these media channels, going to be the replacement for Shoigu. And then Sergei Surovikin, who was in charge of the operations in Ukraine between the autumn of 2022 and January 2023, he most likely will replace Gerasimov as the chief of staff for the Russian armed forces. So that, I think, will potentially also lead to some stabilization in the sense that certainly Sorovikin seemed to hold out an olive branch to Prigozhin relatively early by making not exactly conciliatory statements, but sort of offering a way out. And that might be, Sorovikin might be sort of a representative of that faction within the Russian military and security apparatus that is certainly critical of the way in which Shoigu and Gerasimov have, have run the war so far. For Ukraine, there's a, a push and a pull factor. You now have a vacuum where you had Prigozhin in there. And right now his soldiers have come out because they were on the march. So you lack that military right now. And th there is this shift in power. What are the implications for the war in Ukraine on the ground right now? I think relatively minimal. It was just too short a period of time for Ukraine really to be able to capitalize on the chaos. If that had gone on for a much longer period of time, if those 25,000 plus people would have been missing from the defense lines, if Putin potentially would have had to pull out more troops to deal with the mutiny inside Russia. I think that would have created a much more significant opening for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But they're not there, the 25,000. No, they are not there, but you haven't had the depletion of forces that may have been necessary for Putin to deal with the unrest in Russia. Also, these forces are very well dug in. There are a lot of mines. Russia still has air superiority. So I think, again, from this perspective, from a Ukrainian perspective, it's, if you want, really disappointing that it was over so quickly. Mm. Which, again, I think on reflection tells us something about how desperate Putin was. He mm. could not really risk all of those potential scenarios that would have weakened his war effort in Ukraine. So too many things on too many fronts. and Exactly. Yeah. Completely overstretched in a way. So he came out yesterday morning with his television speech, really vowing to crush the armed mutiny, yeah, uh, to, punish, to punish all the um, mutineers, siding basically with Shoigu and Garasimov in the battle with Prigozhin. And less than 12 hours later, he certainly has to cut a deal with Prigozhin, 
offer an amnesty to Prigozhin's fighters, except Prigozhin to go into exile in Belarus and potentially replace his top military brass in a in a reshuffle. Mm-hmm. So Ukraine status is status quo, you think? I think it's maybe status quo a little bit improved for Ukraine. Not least also if you look at sort of the broader implications, what signal do these 48 hours send not just to Ukraine, but also to Ukraine's allies in the West and to Russia's remaining few allies and the countries in between, if you want. I want to park Wagner for a second because we've talked about Wagner in the past and its operations overseas, and we're going to go back to that. Let's talk about Ukraine, Russia, and the allies and where they fall. So in the West and Ukraine's allies, US, UK, so on, What's the fallout there? I think for the Western allies of Ukraine, what's really interesting here is to see how fragile and brittle the Russian regime actually is. So in that sense, anybody who sort of thought, well, we need to come to the negotiation table as quickly as possible, maybe accept this, that or the other deal. I think that gives some pause for thought to that because... It clearly looks as if Russia is, if you want, more defeatable after those 48 hours, even though Putin may have, you know, gotten himself another lease of life. Well, I'm struck. A little over a year ago, well, more about a year and a half ago now, everyone thought, oh yeah, Russia's going marching in, defeating Ukraine in a day. That's how strong and powerful. Look at them now. The contrast is... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that I saw on social media today was that sort of 2020, Russia could claim to be the strongest military in the world. 2022, it comes out second in Ukraine. 2023, it's number three in Russia itself. So I think there is a clearer sense now of the weakness and vulnerabilities of, of Russia. And just imagine if Ukraine on Friday would have had all the assets that they have been asking for so long. If they had had a large number of battle tanks, if they had really capable air force, even those those 48 hours could have given a window of opportunity to really inflict very significant damage on Russia. Push everybody out. Push everybody out, but also that may have then potentially created a very different situation for Prigozhin, making it even more obvious to people who were sitting on the fence whether they should support him, whether they should support Putin, whether they should just do nothing to see that actually this cannot go on and Prigozhin may be their best chance to actually get a change. That would not necessarily have been a better outcome in any way. So it's not... Just would have been a different scenario. Exactly. So NATO, allies in the West? I think double down on the support is really what needs to happen now. So that if such a situation arises again, and it may not be Prigozhin, but then Prigozhin is only in Belarus. He retains significant power bases. He probably retains most of his global business network, his quite significant financial firepower. So he is down he is not out. He may have lost round one. As long as he doesn't go up into any high buildings with windows. Or has tea with Putin. But all joking aside, it's not completely out of the question that he will at some point make a comeback. So all I'm saying is that Putin may have 
prevailed now, but whatever he has done has not addressed the fundamental insecurity that his regime is facing as a result of the ground war in Ukraine. But we're not going to see the West try to do some sort of deal with Prigozhin. It's it's not like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He's no, there. it was very clear, I think, that there would be no Western interference. Clearly, he didn't have the, the time to see it all play out and maybe end up even in a civil war in Russia. But I really don't think that there was any appetite on the Western side to intervene there. I think what it did do, though, is re-impress on many Western leaders the need to keep supporting Ukraine, not least because the war is beginning to look more winnable now on Ukraine's terms. And whether that's winning on the battlefield or winning at the negotiation table, those last 48 hours, in my view, have significantly improved Ukraine's chances in the long term. Talk to me about Russia's allies, including China. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. There wasn't much coming out of Beijing or any of the other BRICS capitals, if you want. Probably also not enough time. China usually very carefully considers its stance on these things before they formulate a position. What I would imagine people were worried about in China is, well, if we have a civil war in Russia, what does that mean for nuclear safety, for example? I'm mean, worried about that too. Russia is a country with the largest number of nuclear warheads. Who knows? And I think one thing that China has always been consistent since the beginning is that there must not be use of nuclear weapons. So I think that was a significant worry for China. Now, obviously, it's all over, at least for now. But I think what the message that China is likely to take from that is also that Russia is not a dependable ally. And that also then has implications, say, for... Not dependable because... Not dependable because it's, it's very weak. It's, very, it's a very brittle, fragile system where even if Putin stays on, he may not be as much in control anymore as he was before. So what that means for China also is if you just look simply at the what the last 48 hours have revealed about the military capabilities that Russia has, if there was any problem in Central Asia, for example, as we had in, in Kazakhstan in, in January 2022, Russia would not be in a position to resolve that. So I think that increases also pressure on China to become more of a security player, of a security guarantor in places like Central Asia, where Russia simply doesn't have the assets anymore to perform that role. And that will really also shift once again the the balance of power between Beijing and Moscow. And Moscow will become even more of a junior partner and probably even less of a partner now than it has been and become more dependent on on China. You mentioned the BRICS. Modi was just in the US, has been in the US for several days. What does that do with the relationship there? Well, I think sort of if you look at Modi's visit to the US, if you look at the rather vain attempts of the African leaders to broker a deal between Kiev and Moscow. And now you add in the last 48 hours, I think one of the things that it also indicates is a potential shift in the view that 
other countries in the global south have on who they should side with in this war. So clearly, yes, they may have misgivings about the West. They may have misgivings about NATO expansion, all of those things. They may see some merit in the Russian narrative of why they invaded Ukraine. But they have to calculate very much in terms of their own national interests. And their national interests are, for example, a renewal or an extension of the grain deal between Moscow and Kiev that comes up for renewal in July. Let's focus on the grain deal for a second, because I really like the piece that you wrote on the trip by African countries to talk about peace and food security. It got very little press but I thought it was a really important thread. Can you talk a little bit about the grain deal and also the role that Erdogan plays in that because they had a phone call the other day and so on. So can you just go deep a little bit? I think the, the grain deal was something that was initially negotiated in July of last year, mediated by the UN and Turkey, basically an agreement that Ukraine could export grain, Russia could export fertilizer now been lots and lots of problems with that. Very slow peak of the of the effectiveness of the deal was probably October last year in terms of the volume of grain that Ukraine was able to export via its Black Sea ports. It's gone down quite significantly since then. And the Russian fertilizer exports never really got very much off the ground, not least also because the, the pipeline that actually brings the fertilizer from the areas where it's produced to the Black Sea ports of Russia got damaged at some point. So even if there was support for the export, the logistics of it simply don't work at the moment. Now, Putin has repeatedly threatened to prevent an extension of the deal or to basically not allow for an extension as late as a couple of days ago in a, in a press conference that he gave. Now, 48, 72, 96 hours after that, we are in a very different position. And whilst none of the readouts that I've seen of the Erdogan-Putin phone call, it is quite significant that Erdogan was one of the first leaders to speak to Putin on Saturday morning. Yeah. And he is, if you want, probably one of the last people in sort of, in a broader sense, the West that Putin is close to, given that Turkey is a member of NATO. So I think it is quite likely that part of the conversation also was about not just Erdogan impressing on Putin that really a civil war in Russia would not be a good thing, but also impressing on him the need to support support an extension of the grain deal, not least because if Russia doesn't do that, that would further damage their standing in the global south. And it would be very difficult for them to spin that in a narrative that would be, you know, appreciated in countries like, well, some of the African countries that really depend on on Russian grain, large uh, countries in Asia like Indonesia and so on and so forth. So actually, the trip by this group of African countries may have been more successful than it seemed in the first instance. The actual trip didn't get them anything, but it became a negotiating pressure piece, or no? Well, that's very difficult to sort of Based on the information that is publicly available, I, I really don't think there's that much evidence for it. But I think what 
what it does now is that it potentially, after the fact, gives even more credence to the to the fact that the Africans, in a way, really were there for their own national interest. And there's nothing wrong with that, because if their people are starving, that's not, not a good thing. Yeah, and I actually think what was interesting about it to me was oftentimes you have diplomacy and negotiation on behalf of the African countries and somebody else speaking up for them and they become a sort of chess piece. And I really liked the fact that they went representing themselves to speak directly to the people who are causing them direct problems. And so to me, that seemed a shift in the diplomacy and power structures. Did, did that not to you? Absolutely. I think what they didn't get quite right was the idea that they could travel to Kiev and to St. Petersburg, speak with Zelensky and Putin, and then miraculously get them to agree to sit down and negotiate, where even China hasn't managed to do that yet. And China is in a much, much more powerful position to do that. If they had framed that much more narrowly in terms of a mission to secure an extension of the grain deal, that potentially would have been a more effective way of doing it. But either way, you're absolutely right. It shows a degree of, again, it's sort of part of this broader shift, I think, that we are seeing currently in the way in which the the existing international system unravels and in which we are not quite clear yet where we will end up. And one of the things that we might end up with is much more agency and sort of activism by African countries on behalf of African countries, rather than sort of this more passive relying on international organizations to to do their bidding. Yeah, I would definitely put that on our radar screen for something to keep an eye on, because as they become more practiced at it, and they begin to develop a voice and a power of their own, you may see Africa emerging as a continent with the countries working together as being able to go out and have discussions along with other blocks of countries that work together. I think that's a possibility. We will see how that develops over the next couple of months and years for sure. One of the things that I'm thinking about is what happens now, and everybody's watching. I look at things from the geoeconomic and business perspective, and this was so fast and essentially on a weekend that we'll have to see how things shake out in the markets. It may have very little impact on things, but these undercurrents of shifting power and structures. No, you're absolutely right. I think the, it will be very interesting to watch the reaction of the markets on Monday morning. Because it was so fast, because it started almost after the markets closed and was finished before they opened, I personally don't think that we will see much of an immediate reaction. Certainly not something where I would see much negativity. The markets may take some comfort from the fact that, well, Luckily, we didn't or we don't have a civil war in Russia right now. It seems that the regime, as appalling as it is and as abhorrent as it is, sort of regained control and therefore a degree of stability. But what it also means in the longer term is it reinforces the message that 
Russia is really not a place to do business with and to do business in. Certainly not for Western companies, I would say. And I think even for China as a potential other major investor or the or the Gulf states, it's risky. Even if you don't care about human rights, political freedoms, civil liberties, and so on, you still want your investment to be secure. And you can't have it secure if you see how brittle a regime Putin really is presiding over. That has several sort of economic consequences from my perspective. One is that you will probably see a further decline in investment in Russia, which will then also mean that Russia will simply not have the financial resources to actually even keep up its own development. Uh, investment in new oil and gas exploration, building pipelines, all of that really is certainly something that companies should and probably will question how safe that is. And that again then might have an impact on sort of where we see both the oil and gas market go, but it might also then to some extent encourage even more the transition to alternative energy sources being sped up simply because Russia is one of the largest suppliers to date, simply no longer is part of a reliable supply chain. Take a quick detour with me for a second, because over the past several months, we've talked about and written about on Navigating the Vortex, Wagner, and it's fingers in many pies. So the focus has been, for the most part, up until now in the press, about their relationship in Russia, what's happening in Ukraine. But what we've been looking at is what role they play in other countries and how they step into places of instability in parts of Africa and other conflict zones. And I think that's going to come more to the fore now. And in fact, to CNN this week did a story about that confirming some of what we've talked about. Can you talk a little bit about Wagner's activities in other areas of conflict and why for Wagner it didn't work this time and the Prigozhin has been sent to Belarus. He doesn't need to stay in Belarus. There are a lot of other places he can go. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about this is that until now, Wagner basically was sort of one of the instruments for Russian foreign policy. So this was one of the ways in which Russia really began to reassert influence in Africa by providing various regimes, Mali, Chad, arguably Sudan, Libya, and so on and so forth, with basically military muscle for the regimes there to secure themselves or for their opponents to basically push the regimes out. Now, the relationship between Wagner and the Kremlin has been destroyed, but Wagner is still there. So the question is, what will they do now? So to what extent will they become basically an independent mercenary force? I think here, Sandline International, sort of mm-hmm. years ago, one of those Western-based mercenaries, right. sort of guns for hire kind of things. So now... That already was problematic at the time. Now, imagine sort of the military culture that uh, comes from, which has very little regard for their own and certainly no regard for civilian uh, Mm -hmm. lives, has virtually no respect for anything that resembles international norms, human rights, and so on and so forth. So 
Potentially, you end up with a situation now where you have a relatively large, well-trained force of international mercenaries with multiple bases in Africa plugged into a very strong financial network. That is not going to contribute to security and stability in Africa and arguably beyond either. So in terms of the things that we should definitely keep on our radar is so what happens with Wagner now? What are their next moves going to be? And how is that going to impact events in conflicts far, far away from Ukraine? And also it occurs to me, as you're talking, Wagner and China, because of course China is having a big impact in Africa. You've written a lot about the Belt and Road Initiative. You've done an enormous amount of work on that. What I'm thinking about is in this changing dynamic where you had Russia and China in these areas of conflict and in these areas of natural resources, it seems to me that there's something else to keep on our radar, which is if Wagner is not connected to Russia in the same way it is acting independently, what is Wagner's relationship with China? I think that's a really interesting question, both from the perspective of is there going to be a potential conflict between Chinese interests and what Wagner is doing in Africa? In particular, I'm thinking here in terms of all the mineral resources that Wagner has tapped into yeah. and how they may you know, conflict with Chinese interests, how they may affect certain international supply chains. The other question that if you wanted to think of a potential black swan event here, China has its own private military companies. They have used them with greater or lesser effect, in particular in Central Asia, basically protecting their investments. They are specifically related to the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, Black Swan event in that context would be, well, Beijing simply takes over. That's exactly what I was thinking about, is do they decide that actually it's in their best interest to have a, a strong relationship with Prigozhin, and then he just sort of switches horses? Absolutely. It's not completely inconceivable. There are two factors that would speak against it. One is obviously that Putin and Prigozhin had falling out and Xi and Putin are very close. So Xi may again sort of harbor doubts about how reliable a partner Putin can be, but he would probably not really offend him to the extent that he would do a deal with Prigozhin. I think there is a, but it might be a way of also keeping Prigozhin in check. Uh, I don't think so, because that, that would be my other concern. China really tries to keep quite a lot of control over, over everything, basically. So bringing in literally a foreign mercenary company, I think that would be quite tricky for China, both to manage, but also to even conceive of that, I think it would be tricky. Again, we can't rule it out. It's something to well, certainly think about and then consider what would be the implications of that and at what point would one need to sort of think about contingency plans and, and mitigation measures. But I think it is more likely that Wagner will become just one of many international mercenary companies that basically operate out of their own interests rather than being what they used to be until now, basically a foreign policy instrument of the Russian state. What we've unearthed here is a number of new things to keep on our radar, which is amongst them 
the African countries and their role in a shifting and dynamic diplomatic landscape, what will happen with China and Russia, what will happen with Wagner and who they end up having relationships with, what will happen in Ukraine and the changing dynamic of the warscape there. And also, though it may seem as if it rose and then fell quickly, I think that we'll be seeing reverberations from this for quite some time, and it will keep everybody pretty busy. It certainly has kept you busy. I'm glad to have had the chance to sit down and talk to you about this. You'll be traveling for the next week, so bon voyage. A big thanks to all our readers, listeners, followers, and subscribers. We launched Navigating the Vortex two months ago, and now more than 100,000 of you get our newsletter and podcast delivered straight to you all over the world. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, give it a go. It's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on anything. And if you're anything like us, if something catches your fancy, you like to read the primary sources, you'll be able to read the full written version of all of our pieces which include all the background links to the reports and information that we cite. You can register for free for all of that at navigatingthevortex.com. You can also subscribe for subscriber-only access to comments and chats and other special subscriber-only benefits. You can find the details in the podcast show notes as well. We hope you'll share Navigating the Vortex with anyone you think might find it of interest, and if you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks again. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.